218 of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com arrives to you today. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. Uh, no planned intro. That was the best I could do. Yeah, I was going to say, that was very contrite. We're just like, here we are, and uh, hello. This is and the show there. that we do. Yeah. You know, it worked out. Um, but hey, welcome in. We're talking all things minor league baseball. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City, and uh, we're ready to roll on this. We're recording on July 17th. We're post futures game we're post first halves in full season leagues we are post uh major league and triple a all-star game like we are getting down to the nitty-gritty of the uh second half dog days as they say and thanks for tuning in this week you can get us anywhere you find your podcasts on apple Podcasts and google play and milb.com slash podcast you can check out all of our past episodes with our descriptions and all those types of fun things and uh yeah we'll get rolling with three strikes for this week's episode Kicking things off, talking about the next big day on the Major League and Minor League calendar, and that is two weeks from today when the Major League Baseball trade deadline arrives for 2019. And that already important day becomes way more important in 2019 and going forward because that is the only one now. Used to be there was a non-waiver trade deadline, which was July 31st, and then a waiver trade deadline a month later in which you could still make trades. It's a little bit more complicated. That one has been eliminated. So July 31st is it. That is the drop-dead trade date. Strike one this week, Sam. Uh, trade deadline always means a lot for minor leaguers. It's kind of a an anxious couple of weeks for guys. Uh, give us your preview of what this trade deadline could look like this year. Yeah, so uh, I wrote a, a tool shed on this last Friday kind of previewing it and I, and I do like that there is only one trade deadline um i think that's only going to improve what the trade line is like but it, but it also means i don't know it, it, i'm interested to see what it means in terms of teams making calls on whether they're buyers or sellers um i was kind of hopeful that it would mean more teams would be buyers uh you know without that extra cushion of another month you have to make a decision okay we're going to go for it Um, I haven't quite seen that play out yet, but we haven't really had any major trades happen quite yet. Uh, Since I wrote it, I I mentioned the Baltimore Orioles as being a selling team. Of course, the Orioles are going to try to sell whatever they can. Um, They just don't really have the assets to turn like a Manny Machado trade that they had last year. Uh, The one they had was really Andrew Kashner, who they traded to the Red Sox. Uh, quite quickly after I wrote that story uh, for a couple of really low-level players, and it's going to be years before we find out if that trade works out. Um, but what what is that going to mean for some other clubs? We're going to find out exactly two weeks from now. So in under two weeks from where you guys have heard this, I, I think the trade market is definitely going to pick up. Uh, in terms of organizations that have the best chance to really improve their farm system, and that's the lens we have to look at this through, Uh, I would say the San Francisco Giants are at the top of that list. Uh, The Giants have kind of been pegged as a seller to begin the season. Uh, They made a lot of aggressive moves in the past, but just have not been able to get over that hump. Uh, Nobody really expected them to compete with the Dodgers in the NL West or sticking in that division, the Rockies potentially in the wildcard race, the loaded NL Central, the loaded NL East. Never really looked like they were going to be competing for a playoff spot. Uh, that has come to fruition. They're not there. So Madison Bumgarner could be traded as a rental. Everybody kind of expects him to. He's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. What do you get for Madison Bumgarner? We'll have to see. He is obviously a proven postseason talent. Um, He's not at the same level he was two, three years ago in terms of regular season production, but he's not going to shrink from, you know, the big spotlight. He, 
he's going to be dependable down the stretch. Uh, almost every competing team now could use a starting pitcher. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So I think the competition for him could drive up the price. I'm a little surprised he, nobody's bitten for him yet, or at least put in a bid that the Giants have found acceptable. Uh, but where the Giants farm system is right now, it's pretty much Joey Bart, Elliot Ramos, uh, Marco Luciano, and you know, depending on some of the other names in there, that's about it. Um, this is not a farm system at a place right now that need, where it needs to be if it's going to be rebuilding, if it's going to be centered around its minor league talent. Uh, not quite there. So uh, they need to make some, some trades to kind of bulk that up. Adding Hunter Bishop in the draft was a good step towards that direction. Uh, trading a bum is going to be big. If they can trade Will Smith, I think Will Smith, their closer, actually will get a probably bigger package than Bumgarner. Um, although uh, maybe not. I don't know. They're both rentals. We'll, we'll have to see. Will Smith is a better pitcher this season. It f- uh, fills his role better. Again, any contending team is going to need help in the bullpen. I can think of several that need it right away. Um, and I think that competition is going to drive up the price on Will Smith. Sam Dyson, Tony Watson, Reyes Moranta, uh, also bullpen pieces, not going to get the same price that Will Smith will. But you know, available for trade. And, um, you know, we thought we had the age of the bullpen in the past and, and teams have paid through the nose to get relievers. Uh, I'll be interested to see what prices they're willing to pay for those. Are any of these going to be, you know, franchise building trades? I, I don't think we're quite there just because they are rentals. Um, but the Giants farm system should be significantly better a month from now if they make some of these swaps than it is currently. Um, another one we're looking at is the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Blue Jays, you know, they were always going to be in a rebuilding year. We actually had them as the sixth best farm system in baseball coming into the year. I know some other places had them higher. I know some other places had them lower. Uh, we settled at sixth basically because they have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's now graduated. Bo Bichette is knocking on the door. Nate Pearson has only helped his stock this year. Jordan Groshans has been really good when he's healthy. Eric Pardino is starting to get going. Kevin Biggio has graduated to the majors. It is a good farm system. The, the pipeline has worked out well, I would say, in 2019, but they're still not there yet in terms of being major league ready and, and major league ready for competition and uh, the AL East against the likes of the, the Yankees, Rays, and Red Sox. Uh, so, Marcus Stroman. This is, might be the time to deal him. He's got one more year of arbitration team control beyond this one, so you're basically getting him for a year and a half. Good young pitcher. Um, this is like a type of deal that we think about maybe like Chris Archer last year. Archer had a little bit more years of control, but he brought back Austin Meadows, Tyler Glasnow, and Shane Boz. Uh, are other teams going to be willing to make that same deal that the Pirates did, especially seeing how that's worked out for the Rays? Probably not. Um, but that's the type of level we're talent, uh, t- type of level of talent we're talking here, and that's what the Blue Jays should be aiming for. If they can add three guys of that mix into you know next to Groshans, Bardino at the lower levels, or next to uh, you know Pearson, Bobichette at the upper levels, uh, this Blue Jay system can take. In- another jump even after graduating Vlad. Um, so that'll be really, really interesting to see. New York Mets is a team I'll throw out there real quick. Um, the Mets were hopeful to be competing this year. They haven't quite got there, obviously. Uh, and their farm system obviously took a big hit by letting go of Jared Kalenic, uh, or Jared Kelnick, uh, Justin Dunn, 
as well. They've graduated P. Alonso, which is great. They've kind of replaced him amongst their top 100 ranks with Anthony Kay. Uh, they were hoping to trade Zach Wheeler. He's now on the injured list. It'll be interesting to see if they're willing to part ways with Noah Syndergaard. I don't think they will be, but Syndergaard could definitely get a haul back and really inject some talent into that Mets system. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that one. And then some of the other ones, quick, Miami Marlins should be looking to trade no matter what. Don't really think they have the pieces. Maybe Miguel Rojas, who has been really, really good defensively, could help a team in, in need of a shortstop. The Mariners, when are we not talking about the Mariners in trade talks? Um, they've already moved away Edwin Encarnacion and Jay Bruce. Uh, maybe somebody like Mike Leake or D. Gordon gets involved there. We'll have to see. Um, but nothing really earth-shattering from the Mariners. I don't think we can expect that. Uh, the Tigers, maybe they move Shane Green to kind of help their rebuilding efforts. Uh, Lord knows they could kind of use it. Riley Green has been a good addition in the draft, but otherwise Casey Mize is hurt. Matt Manning is continuing to help, um, but they need kind of that next level to make a jump. We had them at 15th. I don't see any reason to put them in the top 10 right now, even with the good first half that Mize has had. Uh, and the Kansas City Royals, another team that's kind of in the back half of the farm systems right now. Uh, and some of their top prospects haven't had great seasons. MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, Suli Matias, thinking of those guys. Adding Bobby Witt Jr. was great in the draft, and he certainly helps them. But if they're willing to trade Whit Merrifield, and I don't think they will be because they just signed him, um, but he's all-star level, obviously. Uh, he can play second base. He can play the outfield. They just signed him to an extension that is extremely team-friendly. Uh, any team would be willing to take that on. They could get a major haul, I think, for Whit Merrifield if they really want to, to you know, inject talent to the minor league system. The problem is they'd be punting. They would basically be saying, we don't think we will contend in the remainder of Merrifield's contract. Don't quite see that. But if that happens, that could be the trade of the this uh, this deadline period. So a couple of things to look out for in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure te other teams will be sellers as we get closer and they really decide, hey, we're not going for it. But the way things stand as of when I wrote this last Friday, um, those are the ones that can really help their farm systems with some good deals here in the next two weeks. Strike two this week, we had a couple of big promotions of uh, 2018 first-round draft selections college guys who've moved up to the double-A level already. Uh, Trevor Larnack in the Minnesota Twins organization. The Oregon State product is up with double-A Pensacola. And Stetson product, Logan Gilbert in the Seattle Mariners system, is now up with double-A Arkansas. Big moves for guys who are having really good years already this season, Sam. Yeah, these were guys who were both taken in the top 20 picks. Gilbert was taken 14th overall uh, in 2018. Larnick was taken 20th overall. Uh, I'll start with Larnick just because he was doing incredibly well. Uh, Class A advanced Fort Myers. This was kind of the path we always believed he could. He was set out for. Uh, I, I wrote a couple weeks ago about prospect promotions that were on the horizon, uh, and he was definitely on that list because college bat doing really well at the Class A advanced level. Uh, at the time he was promoted, he was leading the FSL in average and OPS at 316 and 842. Those may not look great, um, again, for an advanced bat like his, but the FSL is extremely pitcher friendly. Um, so showing a good hit tool for him from the left side. Um, not too much power yet, but he did have 26 doubles, so he is sticking in the gaps. 
be interested to see what happens to that power when he gets out of the FSL. Thing to watch with him is what's going to happen with him defensively. He primarily played right field uh, with Fort Myers. Now he moves to Pensacola and is joined joining a team that already has Alex Kirilov, uh, who has played a good amount of right field, obviously. Uh, Kirilov, when he was coming off the injury after missing all of April, played a good amount of first base. Now, are they going to rotate the two? Are they going to have Larnick, who played some left field? Are they going to move him to the left field? His above average arm plays in right. That's not really an issue here. Uh, it's just... How are they going to make that rotation work? Is it going to be a rotation or is Lorna going to be stuck in left and, and Kirilov in right? Uh, good problem to have for sure. Their first game, Lorna was in left, Kirilov was in right. They have the DH option, obviously, being an AL organization. So how are they going to cycle those th two guys through? That'll be really interesting to watch. Uh, for Gilbert, the Mariners kind of surprisingly took the slow road with him, at least to begin the year. They started him out at Class A West Virginia, uh, and he did what a college pitcher should do, at least of his caliber. Uh, had a 1.59 ERA and five starts there. Struck out 36 batters in 22 and two-thirds innings. They bumped him up after only those five starts. Moves up to Modesto. Is dominant there as dominant as we could ever expect a pitcher to be in a hitter-friendly environment. It's kind of funny to talk about these two guys. Larnick did, will, did well with a bat uh, in a pitcher-friendly circuit. Uh, Gilbert did well in a hitter-friendly circuit as a pitcher. Uh, but he had a 1.73 ERA with 73 strikeouts and 62 in the third innings. Probably should have been in the Cal League all year long. Uh, but now gets the bump to double A. So on one hand, it looks cool that he has moved to – to his third level of the season, it, it looks like they're moving him quick. Really, he's on the track he probably all, always should have been. Uh, he's got three above-average pitches. His fastball could be considered a plus pitch. His slider and changeup are really good. The curveball is also there to you know, round out the arsenal. Uh, he has shown really good control this year with only 18 walks and 85 innings between his two spots. This is where you start to get challenged at double A. Um, you know, you're going, to want to, going up against more patient hitters, uh, guys who are going to hit mistakes much better. Uh, what happens to him when he moves to the Texas League and faces the toughest hitters he's ever faced in his career? We'll have to watch out for that. But he will get a handful of starts there at double A and, and round out his first full season. And if he does well there, then his uh, stock will sk skyrocket even more than it is currently. He's number 68 overall. Uh, according to MLB.com, after starting the year outside the top 100. Wouldn't be surprised to see him climb even a little bit more uh, when they update the list again at the end of the month. And strike three this week uh, to round out our opening segment. We've already got some really impressive performers from the 2019 draft, talking about Logan Gilbert and Trevor Larnack, who were first-rounders a year ago. Uh, already some guys from this season's draft who have blown up to get their professional careers started. Sam, who's the who are some of the names that have really stuck out to you so far? Yeah, so uh, funny enough, the couple of batters that st stood out to me, uh, they're four of the top eight picks, and I'll run through them real quick. Andrew Vaughn with the White Sox. Hit so well in the AZL, as expected. He was probably the best actual bat in the draft. Uh, hit so well in the AZL, hitting 600 <laughs> over 15 plate appearances. That pretty they already good. Moved, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Going nine for uh, nine for 16, which that's not how that works. Um, <laughs> it says he's hitting 600, but I think the at-bats and plate appearances are switched here. Uh, he went nine for 15. Anyway, hey man, uh, I majored in broadcasting. Don't ask me. Yeah, he's already at Class A Canapolis anyway, uh, and doing quite well there, hitting 333 with a 947 OPS uh, in his first 
50 plate appearances there. Um, so he's performing as well as we thought. Wouldn't be surprised to see him end the year at Winston-Salem. Uh, Riley Green in the Tiger system, he's already moved up. Now, he's much younger. He was a high school player. Uh, he's already moved up to Class A short season Connecticut in the Tiger system, doing quite well with them. Uh, he flirted with the cycle the other night. He's already got a home run for them. He has an OPS above 1,000 everywhere he's hit. Uh, one other guy, C.J. Abrams in the Padres system, as if the Padres need another really good hitter and another really good prospect. C.J. Abrams still in the AZL, unlike the other two guys I've mentioned so far, um, but in 21 games is hitting 427. Uh, his game on July 15th, was the first time he did not get a hit in a game. He opened his career on a 20-game hitting streak, which was insane. Um, you know, he's, he's showing mostly gap power right now. He's got 11 doubles, four triples compared to two home runs, uh, eight strikeouts versus six walks. He's stolen 12 bases, looking extremely toolsy as a shortstop for the Padres. Uh, you know, they they have Fernando Tatis Jr. at that position for a long time and Manny Machado at the third base position for a long time, but much lower is this 18 year old who's already tearing things apart in the AZL. Uh, I would like to see him get challenged with a, with a move off the complex at some point. Uh, he's not really learning much if he's hitting 427 in 21 yeah. games, but you know, you can't predict this either. You can't predict a 20 game hitting streak for anybody, uh, never mind an 18 year old just getting his feet wet at the lower levels. So, really cool to see him. Uh, one other name I'll throw out there as well is Quinn Priester. This was not a year for for uh, high school pitching, excuse me. Uh, not a lot of guys getting taken in the first round out of high school, uh, whether that's just a down class or whether that's apprehension for taking young arms because we see the propensity for them getting hurt. I think it's going to take a few years until we see that. Uh, but Quinn Priester ha has been sent to the GCL and is doing, he's getting longer stints than guys normally get at that level. He pitched five innings in his last game on Monday, struck out seven, uh, only allowed three hits over five scoreless innings. They're letting him go a little bit, which is interesting. I want to know how long that's going to go for. Uh, but so far, 14 strikeouts, only three walks in 11 to third innings in the GCL. Um, you know, for being such a young arm, what is he going to be able to do? How long of a leash are they going to give him? Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that. But to, to take off the way he has has been really cool in a year when we thought we wouldn't see much out of high school pitching. So keep an eye on those how many did I mention? Four guys uh, coming out of the draft. And then we're still waiting uh, for Adley Rushman to make his debut. I think he was sick for a while. Uh, they said he was going to go to the GCL. I know he's been down there, uh, has yet to appear in a game. Once he does, I'm sure we'll talk about it. We'll write about it. Um, but he is yet to make his pro debut. So every day I'm checking the GCL Orioles box score, and I, I hope you are too. And uh, that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up, we're going to head to the Arizona Diamondbacks system where the seventh-ranked prospect in that organization, Alec Thomas, who was busted out this year, second-round selection last year uh, out of high school, is slashing 307, 391, 490 for Class A Kane County this year. And Sam got a chance to catch up with Alec Thomas next. We're joined this week on the show before the show podcast by Arizona number seven prospect Alec Thomas coming to us from the Kane County Cougars. Alec, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. 
Um, one thing I wanted to get into with you here real quick, because when we were setting up this interview, you said you were getting to the ballpark. Um, one thing we don't talk to guys a lot about, but they always mention is getting into a rhythm, getting finding a routine for them. Um, so now that you are there, what is your routine? What is something you've settled into in your first full season? Um, well, right now I get to the ballpark around 2, you know, 145, somewhere around there. And um, chill out for a little bit, make sure I'm there, make sure I'm clocked in. And um, you don't want to be, you know, the straggler coming in late. So make sure you're really at the ballpark. And then the next thing is just um, we have early cages and usually just get your routine in. And that's, for me, that's like one-handed drills and um, making sure my hands are ready for, for batting practice. And so I'm easing into batting practice. Yeah, and in batting practice, what is kind of your strategy? What is something you work on? Some guys focus in on going the other way, trying to flex that part of their game. Some guys just focus up the middle. When you're taking your hacks pregame, what are you trying to do in terms of working things out so you are ready for game time? Um, for me, I think um, I think I've like grown to learn like like I'm best whenever I hit the ball um, hard the other way. So in batting practice, I just try to hit. Um, backside homers and um, and see how that works and usually it works out pretty good for the, for the game so whenever I whenever I start pulling the ball it's like alright well I should probably stop doing this because it might translate over to the game and sometimes it has where I just pound the ball straight to the first baseman and second baseman so I think it's best whenever I try to hit backside home runs so you should still have juice and it's the other way so it works out pretty well yeah no for sure and you're kind of in a unique situation as well in that, like we said, you, you're currently, at, you know, with the Kane County Cougars. You are an Illinois guy. You're a Chicago guy. Uh, it's, I, I looked it up on Google Maps beforehand. It's about an hour and a half from your high school to where Geneva, Illinois is, where the Cougars play. Um, what is it like being back in the home state? And, and you don't have to really get comfortable to an area that you don't know. You know it at least a little bit. What is it like at playing at least this close to home uh, at this point in your career? Well, I'll tell you this, my, my tickets, I always have to leave a lot of tickets because there's always <laughs> someone that, that wants to come to the game. But um, it's nice being home. It's nice knowing that you know, I have a fan base here with my family and girlfriend and all that and uh, friends as well. Um, so it's always nice to have that, um, you know, feel of like feel like you're back at home. So it's pretty nice being, being close. Yeah, and I, I know – some people go through this in college. You try to figure out what's like a safe distance to be from home so your parents aren't always checking up on you, but also you are close to home. How much are your parents like coming by? I, I know your dad is obviously busy with the White Sox. We'll get into that a little bit later, but um, what is it like having them that close and trying to be starting your professional career, but also that close to home? Um, it's pretty nice. I mean, my mom comes to maybe – um, a good amount of the games for, for the home games whenever we're home. And uh, my dad comes whenever he has an off day or or he'll at least try to make the 11 o'clock game if he's, if he's got a game at 7 o'clock. So it works out pretty well. My sister um, plays tennis, so my mom's busy with her, but they don't, they don't always get a chance to make it out. But it's always nice when they do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's better to have that option than not, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
one one thing we wanted to bring you on the podcast to discuss as well is you're just coming off the futures game, which is an honor for any prospect, obviously, but especially somebody like you who was just taken in the second round last year to already be at this place where you are going to a, a showcase like that, getting to play in a big league stadium in Cleveland. Um, you know, now that you are a little bit more re- removed from it, it's been about a week and a half. How do you kind of reflect back on that experience? Um, just for that experience, um, it just shows how much that I need to keep working because there's always those guys out there that, that are possibly better than you. So you got to keep on working. I think it was a big eye-opener to see all those guys and see how far, uh, you know, maybe you're ahead or maybe you're behind some of those guys. So I think it was good to see all that and, and, and eye-opener to, to keep on working hard because there's always those guys there yeah and and when you mentioned you know guys who are going to be better than you certainly older than you um who did you seek out specifically i I know dalton varsho was another d-backs guy you guys haven't really been teammates yet but who were you looking to at least talk to or see in the cages with the nl what what were you what were some of the other guys there you wanted to see the most or talk to the most um I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm pretty good friends with uh, Gavin Lux, so it was good to see him. There you go. And he's having a you know terrific season. Um, but um, other than him, I don't think there's anybody that you know I was really trying to you know see and stuff. But um, playing against uh, Luis Robert, you know, I've I've watched him. You know, when I was a I'm a White Sox fan still, so <laughs> I I watched him and um, seeing him you know playing on the same field as him was pretty cool. And um, because I've seen him in spring training, I've, I've, I've took, you know, infield outfield with him before. So um, it was pretty cool seeing that. And he's having a good good um, season this season, too. So it's pretty cool. But um, I, other than those two, I mean, I knew a lot of those guys. I've, I've, I've seen what they've been doing. But um, I think uh, nobody really, like, I was really looking forward to see. So. I think that's all I got for you. No, I mean, that's pretty good. I, I, I bet getting in to check in on Robert and what he's been able to do this year was interesting to see how he's grown because obviously he's had such a strong season. But when you were talking to, to Gavin Lux, he's somebody who is at AAA now, has seen all these levels and was another high pick, has, has gone through basically what you did these first two seasons. What did he kind of tell you about what minor league baseball is beyond – where you've been so far and what you have to look forward to? Um, I'm not sure if we talked too in-depth about that, but I think one thing that we kind of related on was when we do strike out, it comes in bunches. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure why, but it does. But um, we had that kind of similarity, which was funny. and uh, Because we don't necessarily strike out too often, but when it does, it comes in bunches and. Usually, if we do strike out, maybe there's a hit in there, two or two hits, which is funny. So I thought that was funny. Yeah, no, there you go. It's, it's good to know that there's somebody else like you out there when, when you're going. Yeah. To but we should mention, <laughs> you only have 60 strikeouts and 296 at-bats. You're doing pretty well for yourself on the contact side of the game um, this season. But this is your first full season. Um, you know, having a dad in the game, having been to spring training before there's a cool video out there of you making a catch at, at the spring training complex with the white Sox uh before you went pro um you've been around the game a lot but what has surprised you most about having to play every day and kind of grind out a season here through the first close to three months uh three three and a half months really um of your first full season um i think um just how you approach 
game and how you need to differ your approach whenever a pitcher is throwing a certain pitch or anything like that. I think that's the biggest thing. And um, also, um, you know, taking some of your, like, like some of the games that you had in high school where you thought you were the man and all that, you kind of have to take that same attitude into here because, you know, the game's tough and uh, can't get down on yourself. And then this game is a lot, a lot to do with the mental side. So I think taking some of that attitude and putting it here is the main thing. Yeah, and, and when do you feel like that kind of paid off? When, when was the first time you really said, like, hey, I can be as dominant here as I was in high school? Maybe not quite that level, obviously, but um, my stuff yeah. will, will play here. Was it something you realized last year? Did it take until this year? I mean, at what point did you feel like, hey, I can be really, really good even here in the lower minors? Um, I'm not sure when it happened. I think it just naturally happened, to be honest with you. Um, I think that I've always had that in me. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I think it just naturally happened. Um, and then I figured it out when someone said something, and, and I was like, oh, well, I guess so. Because whenever <laughs> they ask me, oh, what you got? I'm like, I don't know. You ain't got nothing. You know what I mean? It's just something like that. <laughs> you mean in terms of talking about opposing pitching and thinking like, oh, they're not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's the complete opposite. I'm like, he's got the nastiest stuff. He's got <laughs> but um, sometimes it's, it's like, ah, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, to figure it out. I, I, I didn't even know I hit a changeup. I thought it was a fastball. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, yeah, and let's kind of talk about your draft process. You, like we mentioned, you were a second round pick in 2018, um, coming out of Mount Carmel High School in Chicago. Uh, you you played on some of the showcase circuits. I think you played a little bit for Team USA. But going into the draft, you know, what were your kind of expectations for? Given what you have shown so far in pro ball, you probably could have been a first-round pick. You fall to the D-backs in the second round. What were you thinking going into uh, those first couple of picks last year? Um, well, I, like me, me and my dad, you know, we always set you know a high bar, I, um, you know, high bar. And uh, so for me, I thought I was going to be a first. I thought I had the first round potential, but um, I guess not everyone thought that. But um, so. I'm not really sure how to put it, but you know, I gotta. I fell to the second round, so now I gotta show people why I should have been a first rounder, and that's what I try to do every day. Just show why I should have been where I, where I thought I should have been, or why I should be in this position. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And how do you kind of use that as motivation? Is it something? You know, you write down somewhere. Is it, uh, like, ha is it something you constantly think about? I mean, how does that manifest itself as motivation for you? I think when I see some of the guys that, like, we play against, I mean, it it kind of you know gets me angry a little bit because what I what I could have been or what I could could have gotten that's that that's what happens to me. So um, when that when that happened, like right after the draft. You know, I was happy or whatever. Then, like, straight after it going home, I had just, just a sour taste in my mouth. I was like, man, that's crazy. Like, I can't believe that happened. And, you know, I was mad. And um, I continue to be <laughs> be mad. But, I mean, you know, I'm happy. I'm grateful to be in this game and to be, you know, a professional baseball player. But I think uh, the Diamondbacks gave me a chance. And I'm going to ride with it. So I'm grateful for the D-backs taking me and all that. But... Still got a chip on my shoulder. Still gonna go out here and play, 
angry and all that. So. Yeah. No, I mean, that's one thing about being an athlete. Guys use whatever they can to motivate them to be, you know, as good as they can be. Um, but going back to that draft process, how much do you feel like being a Chicago kid kind of played into that? And I only mean that in terms of being a, from a cold weather place. You're not coming from Florida or Texas or Southern California where these guys are playing year round. It's a little bit more difficult. You were a three sport guy. Um, so how much do you feel like that entered the equation when you were going through? Um, I'm not sure how much, you know, Midwest really affects it. I mean, I know people say how, how, it, how it affects it a lot. You know, these California, you know, the Georgia guys get all, or Florida guys get all the, you know, recognition and Midwest guys kind of are pushed to the side. I'm not sure why that is because <laughs> we got some good athletes here. Um, I'm not really sure how that is. I thought football would help, you know, multi-sport guy played basketball too. And you know what? It, I mean, it barely helps. I guess some of these Midwest guys don't, don't really get the appreciation, you know, they deserve. So, um, hopefully, you know, I, I, I set the tone a little bit for us. And, um, you know, we got a guy last year who I know Quinn Priester went pretty high and he's from the Midwest pitcher, but it's a, it's a different it's a different thing than being a pitcher than a, than a hitter in the, in the Midwest. So I'm not sure really how it plays and how what people think, but all right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, between yourself and uh, Jaron Kelnick being a Wisconsin guy. Right, same so, with that. Yeah, the, the reputation might be changing a little bit here going forward. But, um, you know, having a dad in, in the game and somebody who understands being around baseball this much, uh, you know, what – what was a tip you feel like you had coming into pro ball um, that kind of gave you the advantage? What's something your dad warned you about or, or something you knew about just being around the White Sox so much as you did as a kid um, that has translated so far? Um, as soon as you get to the complex, everyone's on the same, you know, the same field as you. So you got to show out. And um, one thing that he that he's always instilled in me that I mentioned before is that there's always going to be someone better than you, so you got to act like it and continue to work hard and continue to push and, and strive to be better at everything and all aspects of it. And uh, I feel like we should mention this because we haven't quite yet. One of the reasons we want to bring you on this year is is because you have been so good. You're hitting 307 with an 880 OPS, eight homers, eight stolen bases, but you've been specifically pretty good of late in your last 10 games in July uh, you're hitting 415 with a 1.151 OPS what have you done to kind of adjust back to the level and and handle things so well of late because I feel like now is about the time when guys your age being 19 years old who are used to high school ball and and maybe some summer ball they start to fade because they're not used to playing 75 plus games. You're getting stronger as the season goes on. What's allowed you to do that? What adjustments are you making here? Um, I mean, it's a game of adjustments and making adjustments almost every day. But um, I think the biggest thing is just having fun out there and just being yourself and not being someone that they want you to be. Just being yourself, going out there, having fun with the guys on your team. Got a good group of guys and they make it fun every day. So I think that's the, that's the main reason why I've been pretty, pretty successful in these last couple couple games in July. And as the season's gone on, when you're talking about making adjustments on adjustments, what have you seen about how opposing pitchers are pitching you, especially as they get more experience against you, and what do you feel like you're adjusting back to? 
Um, I think one part in the season I was uh, sitting off speed and reacting to to the fastball, and um, it was I think it was just one specific team that was doing that, like throwing way more off speed than than I'm used to. But um, I think uh, mainly pitchers right now that I've seen in West Michigan they were throwing uh, fastballs and changeups. I didn't really see any sliders or anything like that. So that was that was weird. But um, you got to make adjustments. Doesn't matter who it is. So. Hmm. Oh, yeah. No, no, that, that makes sense. And th- this Kane County team, you guys in the second half, you know, talking about having fun. Uh, this second half so far, you guys are sixteen and eight. Uh, how has this team kind of come together as the second half has gone on? What have you seen about what's a, what's been able to make you guys get off to such a better start here in the second half? Um, we have a good group of coaches. I think uh, Vince Harrison's done a great job, and Michael Franklin, or yeah, Michael Franklin, he's done a great job, and um, it's been great. Every time after the game, after a win, we have a little meeting or whatever you want to call it, and we just get rowdy and we just get crazy and we give out game balls and all that so it's pretty cool pretty cool atmosphere and i love coming to the field with these guys and it's pretty cool Hmm. and we'll end on these two first off you know everything we've talked about is how you have you know been pretty consistent this year and built up stock and and people are definitely noticing you as the season goes on no longer just a second rounder you're kind of a must follow in the midwest league how do you feel like that's has that changed anything about you? Do you feel like more attention is being paid it's paid to you, whether it's through opposing teams or you know getting coverage, getting sense of the futures game? Um, how do you kind of handle being a little bit more under the spotlight as the season goes on? Um, well, first of all, I felt like I, I should have been in that spotlight before, but I like being under the radar guy coming out from underneath and bursting out onto the scene or whatever you want to call it. I like like coming through the ranks and, and showing people why I should be where I, where I think I should be. So, um, that, I mean, that's how I take it. And um, that's that's how me, you know, and my dad always talk about, like, we got to show these people who you are and you're a Thomas. Show them what Thomas people do. So that's what, that's what we talked about. There, there you go. Yeah, you guys should put that on bumper stickers. That's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the last one will end on kind of a more fun note. At least it seems like a fun note. You were on the base paths. You, were, you came in as a pinch runner during the, the Futures game. So you were on the base paths when Taylor Trammell tried to steal home. First, what was your instant reaction? And two, do you think he was safe? Unfortunately, I was not on base. Oh, but, you um, I saw it. I don't think I was. No, I was, I was definitely in the, in, the, um, in the dugout. But I saw it. I was right there. Okay. I, I thought it was pretty safe on the review, but they called him out. It, it was crazy. I, I think he should have been safe. safe. That would have been cool. That would have been a real cool moment for sure. Yeah, no, I was I was there in Cleveland, and it, it sounded like the whole crowd was getting up for it, and that would have been a legendary moment, but that's all right. Yeah, pr- pretty ballsy right there for <laughs> sure, especially on that stage no, and in sure. one game. <laughs> Well, Alec Thomas, like we said, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck the rest of the way in Kane County between the games you're playing with all the ticket requests you're getting, all that kind of fun stuff. But, yeah, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, best of luck the rest of the way. All right, man, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Benjamin Hill joins us for Episode 218, live from New York City. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and uh, hello, Sam. Sitting to my left in room 4L. 
you are uh, back from a most recent and much closer and I would imagine easier road trip. Although I guess there is probably some challenges. Did you, you went to Syracuse, you went to Auburn um, and we're going to talk about that trip. Did you drive those? I'm assuming you drove those, but like on the East coast, you also have the option of taking a train, like a normal civilization where some of us uh, in the States out West don't really get that. Uh, what'd you do? What'd you do? How'd you get there? Yeah. I mean, this trip was, you know, in, in my mind, it was kind of like semi-official. It wasn't one of my big longer itineraries. It was just a two night jaunt, uh, you know, Auburn and Syracuse, they're located less than an hour away. And really it was motivated. I have a good friend of mine named Nando Defino, uh, who I met years, about 15 years ago in a comedy writing class of all places. I mean, if you can believe it, I'm a pretty funny guy. Um, but we become friends. Nando's actually a, uh, you know, he's a fantasy sports guy. He's made a living in that world for a long time. He currently is a uh, managing editor for the uh, for the Athletic for their fantasy sports site. But anyhow, Nando is originally from Syracuse. I went there five years ago, and it was in the midst of this like ten stadium and ten day trips, and I was just kind of you know just trying to keep my head above water. And I didn't tell Nando I was going to be in Syracuse, and he was very offended and was like, "Bene." You know, you got to what you were in Syracuse. You didn't tell me I'm going to be your designated eater. And, you know, he was very offended for years. Nando has been being when you come into Syracuse, Benny, Benny hates Syracuse. And he kind of just created in his mind this like uh, narrative that I hated Syracuse and that I would never go there again. So this year I said, Nando, let's just pick a little week, pick a weekend and we'll go. So this was uh, my redemption tour with Nando of Syri- <laughs> with Syracuse. Uh, so we went to Auburn on Friday and Syracuse on Saturday and uh, had a good time. But, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it was just kind of like a, a weekend hanging out with a friend as much as it was, you know, the full-on Ben's Biz road trip experience. It was kind of nice. I was able to get out of my routines. You know, it wasn't like finishing the game, going back to the hotel room, doing all the work I usually do. I was like, ah, I can wait for until Monday. You know, it was like half vacation, half, half uh, trip. Well, it wasn't like it was a random weekend either, though. You picked this one probably specifically to go to see the Syracuse Mets become the Syracuse Butter Sculpture. Right. We were just looking at open weekends. And, of course, Auburn and Syracuse had to be home at the same time. And on on top of that, I saw that Syracuse on July 13th would be playing as the Butter Sculptures, which is unless you are – you know, a real New Yorker and not a real New Yorker in the sense of a real Western. Yeah. You know, that's usually when someone says I'm a real New Yorker. Yorker. I mean, I'm from New York City. But unless you're a real empire stater, butter sculptures, sculptures is a reference, um, you know, kind of like the previous uh, alternate identities that Syracuse has had, you know, the salt potatoes uh, after the regional delicacy that is a salt potato, which is basically like potatoes boiled in salt. Uh, last year, as you recall, and this is one of my favorites, they suited up as the devices in honor of the Brannock device, the uh, foot measuring tool that everyone knows, but no one really knows the name of it. But that's a Brannock device, the thing you put your foot in at a shoe store that was invented in the Syracuse area. So this year it was butter sculptures. And that is because the state fair, the New York State Fair, a sprawling 13 day event, um, you know, a massive undertaking uh, is located in Syracuse. In fact, very nearby uh, the Chiefs or the Mets, excuse me, ballpark. Um, and so they partnered with the New York State Fair on uh, doing a night together and uh, putting together an identity based on the New York State Fair. And what they came up with, with with is butter sculptures, because at the State Fair every year in New York, there is a massive butter sculpture. 
you know, it's unveiled before the fair and it's like a big annual tradition. Like this year's butter sculpture is this and here's what the theme of it is. And, uh, you know, they've been doing it since 1969. Uh, if you are from that area or even close to that area, then almost certainly you've gone to the state fair and you know the butter sculpture. You go check it out every year. You know, it takes about 800 pounds of butter to make these things. Um, I was doing a little research. It's been the same husband and wife team who've done the butter sculpture every year since 2002. So shout out to them. I forget their names. They have different last names. So maybe a more progressive butter sculpting couple, not not as conservative as most butter sculptors uh, have a reputation for being. Um, so they became the butter sculptures, and I was there on Saturday night. And uh, it was a fun night at the ballpark. The last time I had been in Syracuse, I can't remember what day it was, but it was kind of a dead week night. Uh, this time on a Saturday, a lot of energy, you know, good crowd out. There's a bobblehead giveaway, uh, a truly bizarre bobblehead um, featuring the mascot Scooch. Um, as a butter sculpture carrying butter. So you have a bobblehead featuring a mascot. So he's like all yellow because he's supposed to be a butter sculpture and he's carrying butter. So it's very meta, very strange, uh, a bobblehead. And he looks kind of dead eyed and almost zombie like in, in this bobblehead. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a strange one for sure. Uh, but they had that and they had, you know, New York State Fair inspired food. And of course, I'll be writing about that in full. Nando was my designated eater. Uh, but they debuted the Amazing Burger, which was topped with fried pickles and cheese and pulled pork and boom, boom sauce. That's another thing. If you're a Syracuse area person, you know, you're all about the boom, boom sauce. Um, so they had that. They had, you know, corn on the cob. Wait, what, on, what kind of sauce is this? It's boom, boom sauce title. <laughs> it's made out of real boom, boom. It's made out of real boom booms, <laughs> what's organic, the, what, locally grown boom booms. Free, free range boom boom. What free is range. the? What's this like comprised of? Now I'm intrigued by this sauce. I'm a big sauce fan, but I don't you know, know the sauce. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I do not know what is in boom boom sauce. Um, I know it has a little bit of a kick to it. It's not like out and out spicy, but it has a bit of a kick. Um, I don't know. All right, I'm gonna look I'm it up. Sorry. Uh, we can look it up and, and listeners, you know, it's good to engage with the listenership, these wide body of individuals. I mean, they don't have wide bodies necessarily. I mean, a wide array Lots of individuals of all over the country. Some of you may be familiar with Boom Boom Sauce. Uh, hit us up um, at Twitter. You know, I'm Ben's Biz. Email uh, show before the show. What's it's, that address again? Podcast at MILB.com. Podcast at MILB.com. I, of course, knew that. I was, no, wait, podcast at MILB.com. I knew that. I was just making sure Sam knew it. And tell us about Boom Boom Sauce. Sounds like a good plan. Um, tell us about Auburn. Auburn is one of my uh, favorite minor league identities, the Auburn Double Days, and that they are named after uh, an apocryphal tale of the creation of baseball, which is that Abner Doubleday created the sport, um, who uh, we now know did not create the sport and may never have uh, really seen the sport in its incarnation. But they got a great logo and, uh, and a great, um, you know, kind of the creation of that story for a team identity is fun. But Auburn's got a, a good little setup. Tell us about that trip or that element of the trip. Yeah, that was Friday night, uh, Auburn Double Days. Uh, you know, one of the uh, you know, New York Penn League has become such a uh, non-New York and Pennsylvania-based league in recent years, you know, sprawling out all, and not just recently, but, you know, sprawling to all sorts of other states, uh, bigger markets, newer ballparks. Um, Auburn is one of kind of the, uh, you know, along with uh, places like Williamsport or Batavia, one of the more traditional markets in that league, you know, a very, a smaller town in central New York. Um, you know, I was, hadn't been there in five years and I was kind of like, oh yeah, they're the double days because like they're located near the Hall of Fame. And, and the Hall of Fame is located, 
where it is because of Abner Doubleday and he lived there. And then I look at the map and I'm like, wait, Auburn's like two hours from the Hall of Fame. Oh, really? And uh, so, so then I had to look into it further. And uh, it turns out that Abner Doubleday's father – uh, was a uh, con- was a member of Congress who represent who lived in Auburn and represented Auburn in his district, and that Abner, Lil Abner, uh, grew up in Auburn. So that is the. Uh, I thought it was just the play on the words the whole time. And yeah, then it helps too. Yeah, Auburn. The fact there's actual history behind it. Yeah, so. and so their mascot is just a uh, a mustache guy. Man a guy with a big mustache and there's no larger costume. It's just a head. So you have this like skinny, probably teenager <laughs> and with a big head. Uh, it's pretty one of the funnier, goofier, uh, mascots out there, but this is a city owned team. There are not many teams in minor league baseball owned by the city. Um, you know, so they run a pretty, it's a small market. Um, the ballpark was built in 95, but, um, is on the site of where the previous ballpark had been. It is a real small town, no frills atmosphere, you know, the kind of organization that's, um, you know, doesn't have a big market to draw from and is just kind of trying to break even every year. Um, since the last time I there, they put in artificial turf. They now have a local college, uh, was it Cuyahoga community college, something like that, uh, now shares the field with them. Uh, so it's getting a lot more use. They have artificial turf. Um, you know, there's some improvements along those lines, party deck down the right field line, I believe was new or at least uh, refurbished that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, these are just some bleachers and a small grandstand and a very, um, low key affordable, um, you know, pretty relatively bare bones minor league organization. So if you like more traditional minor league baseball, then, you know, Auburn is really good for that. And it's, you know, what I like about minor league baseball so much is that within an hour you can be in Syracuse and be at a, you know, big triple a stadium, or you can be in Auburn, um, which is a much uh, more rustic and intimate environment. All right. Well, going from New York, Going back to Texas, uh, in your previous trip, you're still wrapping some stuff up from that, and you had an on-the-road story this week. Uh, back from Amarillo, which you've had a couple stories from so far, but it is a new park, and it is a new minor league situation, so there's going to be lots to come from that and lots we can learn. Uh, but one of the things you did about it was the history of baseball in Amarillo, specifically when it comes to the Amarillo Gold Sox. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the conversations you had there about the Sox and the history yeah, I was in Amarillo at this point almost a month ago, but you know, when I'm at a place for three days, I just can't help getting the material. I'm just a, like a sponge. I've had so much to write about. Yeah, the most recent, and I think final Amarillo story, outside of my uh, designated eater Amarillo uh, food wrap-up, which actually appeared on the site today. Check out all my work at milb.com slash bensbiz. Um, I talked to a guy named Mike Higgins, who in 1976 was the PR director for the Amarillo Gold Sox, who were the previous uh, Texas League entity in the – Uh, Amarillo's previous Texas League team before the Sod Poodles, uh, they played their last season in 1982. They played at Potter County Memorial Stadium, which is only about two miles from Hodgetown, the new home of the Sod Poodles. But whereas Hodgetown is downtown and, you know, big gleaming new ballpark, uh, this facility is uh, much more uh, no frills, shall we say. And it's in a real bad shape now, barely in use. And it's like near stockyards and like a rodeo expo center. Um, It's in a much more kind of desolate open kind of a little bit of a grimy part of town and so just seeing the stadium you just think like oh wow that was a i'm sure a different era of baseball and a different different kind of uh, operation you know it was the kind of it was that era you know where 
teams were bought and sold, you know, where the new owner would just assume the debt. And that was like the, the transaction. It was that kind of uh, era of, of baseball. So I talked to this guy, Mike Higgins, and, you know, he just told me some stories about what it was like working for that team. Um, you know, some of the promotions they did, uh, how cheap some of the owners were down, you know, at various times, including, you know, a guy who, uh, to feed the team between games of a doubleheader, got day old chicken from uh, a local KFC because then he didn't have to pay for it. You know, so it was that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, he worked for the team. He was also a team photographer for the previous iteration uh, of Amarillo's uh, minor league baseball, the Giants. Uh, he had a, a newspaper write up from the last game of the 1970 season between Dallas Fort Worth and Amarillo. And the newspaper article you know, talks about how vandals had broken onto the field the night before and fl- and turned on the sprinklers and flooded the field. And uh, through a lot of hard work, and they even brought in a helicopter, there was about an hour delay, but they actually played the game. What that article does not say, because it probably wasn't known yet at the time, that it was the players on both teams uh, met in a bar that night, just incidentally, and they were like, this is the last game of the season, doesn't mean anything, like, we don't want to play it. So they assumedly probably drunkenly <clears throat> broke into the ballpark and flooded <laughs> flooded it themselves um and one of the uh, players who did that he was on dallas fort worth was ron shelton who used that caper you know to inspire the scene in bull durham and uh it all happened in amarillo oh, yeah, yeah. so there you go it's a story along those lines just kind of looking back and, and kind of comparing and uh, contrasting you know, what double A Texas League baseball was in Amarillo in the 70s and early 80s compared to what it is now. And it is, you know, kind of night and day. And last piece this week, uh, which is a big one as it is annually, the uh, the new top sets, Tops Pro debut for the third season in a row has a Ben's Biz insert set. And uh, this probably never gets any less cool for you, Ben, but tell us about the 2019 edition. Yeah, you know, it came out last month, but I was so immersed with the uh, you know, preparing for my trip and just everything going on that I, I it wasn't until yesterday I really went out and fully uh, promoted this. This year is a, it's Topps Pro debut, a minor league themed set. Um, this is the third year in a row I've had an insert set within it. This year's set has five cards and uh, it's just a really cool process. It's pretty low key. You know, Tops is just kind of like, who do you want to feature this year? And I pick some photos and write up a little back card bio and they're they're almost always like cool let's do it so i've had a lot of kind of editorial freedom to give cards through these three years to people who and things and places that usually don't get cards so this year's set um it does include me i guess it kind of has to in my mind i'm a narcissist but includes me um in Grand Junction last year when I finally visited every affiliated ballpark, Grand Junction, Suplesio Field was the last on my list. So is this a goofy photo of me in a jersey? doesn't have your face, though. No. It's just your back. It's just my back. And With I'm, your logo. And I'm your face, flexing. It's a, it's a goofball thing. It's not like the year before where I was shirtless. I can't do a shirtless pick every year. I got to, like, spark. You know, I got to keep that content kind of minimal. Leave one more, you know. Um also, Roscoe the Rooster, one of my favorite mascots. He is a local amateur wrestler uh, when he's not at the ballpark, and he talks. So I just felt like I had to had to give a little pub to Roscoe. Uh, picked a ballpark card. Um, it's a photo I took when I was visiting McCormick Field, home of the Asheville Tourists. I love that ballpark. You know, built in 1924, a true classic. There's a local um, state. There's a stadium on a hill overlooking McCormick Field uh, Memorial Stadium, which is host amateur sports. There was a lacrosse game going on when I went in there. But uh, that card features a picture I took from the top bleacher of Memorial Stadium overlooking McCormick Field, uh, just trying to show it in all its beauty. Um, 
probably my favorite is I got Peg Johnston a card. Uh, she's this kind of feisty, uh, no nonsense, retired school teacher um, who is a huge Cleveland Indian fan. Indians fan keeps scored every games uh, at every game she goes to, and you know she goes to Mahoning Valley Scrappers games, uh, Lake County Captains games, Akron Rubber Ducks games, Columbus Clippers games. You know over a hundred games a year, all in the Cleveland Indians farm system. And I did a story on her last year, and she has her her own card. Peg Johnston, so uh, I was a big fan of that one. And finally, Mr. Celery, who I just think is one of the most interesting uh, characters in minor league baseball, Wilmington Blue Rocks. He only emerges when the team scores a run and has become sort of improbably a huge part of that team's identity and branding. I mean, they're called the Blue Rocks, their mascot is a moose, and they're defined more than anything else by Celery, you know, only in minor league baseball. So that's Topps 2019 Ben's Biz insert set. Uh, it's part of Topps Pro Debut. You can purchase uh, packs and boxes online and also at your finest uh, local hobby shops and uh, retailers of that nature. Uh, if you do want me to sign any of the cards, I always feel like I'm bragging just by even saying this, but people do contact me. Uh, DM me on Twitter at Ben's Biz. I'll give you the address, and it always makes me feel uh, really special. Sign a card, and then I can lord it over you know, some of the coworkers. Just and don't forge Peg Johnston's signature no but that is sign over her that is one thing is sometimes people send me all the ben's biz cards to sign and i always feel weird putting my signature over just because it's a ben's biz card you know signing cards that aren't me and i always feel like well i guess they want me to do it because they sent it over um you know I, i most prefer to sign the cards with me on them but really i'll sign any card you send me i don't care you know send me a chili davis 1986 tops i'll sign it and one of those original honus wagners that's worth like seven million dollars and yeah it's a ben and you know I'll put my signature right on that for you. Fusing of two eras of baseball. Uh, Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can find everything, Ben, at uh, MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, thanks, man. We'll do it again next week. Yes, we will. And I am um, already looking forward to it. Starting this month. Well, starting at the end of this sentence, I will begin looking forward to next week. Excitement. Beginning now. Before we get to our MILB.TV prediction, predictions, what are we predicting? <laughs> We're predicting. Nope, not predictions. That is not what this is. Uh, our MILB.TV selections, we'll say, uh, for this weekend. Sam has a, a point to clarify about a moment earlier in the show. Yeah, so it, for those of you who listened to the Alec Thomas interview, and I hope you have, uh, I can't imagine you would skip over that to then get to us exclusively. But anyway... Uh, at the end of the Alec Thomas interview, you hear me ask him about, hey, you were on the base paths when Taylor Trammell tried stealing home. What did you see? And he very politely and very calmly said, I don't think I was on the base paths. I was watching from the dugout. The reason I brought it up, if you go to the box score, it says Alec Thomas was entered into the game as a pinch runner <laughs> right before Taylor Trammell stole home. So I was going off that. I was not trying – I was not confused. I was not getting – I mean, I was getting incorrect information. I'm not doubting what Alec Thomas said. I just don't want you to think I'm a crazy person uh, who invented him being on base. I, I did my research. The research could have been wrong, not doubting what he said. Just don't want to think – or have you guys think I'm off my gourd in some way and, and I'm making things up. Uh, so that's where I got it from. His answer was great. That's why we kept it in. Um, really interesting stuff. Really glad we got him. But yeah, just wanted to clarify that before we move on to other stuff. So with that, we will move on to our MILB.TV 
uh, predictions. Or <laughs> way. Um, what are you watching this weekend? Yeah, so uh, we mentioned before Logan Gilbert going up to the Arkansas Travelers. Actually, Logan Gilbert is slated to make his debut on Wednesday. That's already happened. Uh, if you can go back in time and watch that on MLB TV, or if you have access to the archives, which you do if you're a subscriber, go back and watch that, uh, assuming it went well and he it, you know, carried his success from Odessa to Arkansas. That being said, that Arkansas team, you're going to want to watch almost on any night of the week. Uh, Seattle system is greatly improved a lot through trades for sure. Um, but as things stand right now, five of their top seven prospects are with the Travelers. Uh, Justin Dunn is actually scheduled to pitch on Thursday. So if you listen to this before that game, you can watch the game on Thursday. Uh, but Justin Dunn is there. Logan Gilbert is there. Justice Sheffield has been sent down to Arkansas and is kind of refining himself there. Uh, Evan White, another Futures gamer, uh, he's there, which is really neat. Uh, and Kyle Lewis is kind of getting back on the horse himself uh, at Double A Arkansas, 2016 first rounder. Lots of talent on that Arkansas Travelers team. They have been successful. Uh, they will continue to be successful if they keep adding guys like Logan Gilbert uh, here in the second half. I think they have a chance to really go for it in that Texas league. So watch that talent together any night you get the chance. Even on a night that Sheffield, Dunn, or Gilbert aren't, aren't pitching, you're going to want to watch White in the field and at the plate, uh, and you're going to want to watch Kyle Lewis and check in on his progress as he comes off some off years uh, the first couple of seasons in the in the Mariner system. Uh, so watch the Travelers any chance you get. Tyler, what are you going to keep an eye on? Yeah, I'm going to be uh, in the Pacific Coast League, and uh, I'm going to rip this information off from uh, our good buddy Alex Friedman. Quote, since joining the at OKC underscore Dodgers, if you want to give him a follow, June 27th, this is Gavin Lux's slash line, 500, 550, 926. It's <laughs> a 1476 OPS. He leads all players in the major leagues and domestic minor leagues in all four categories during that span. Um, Gavin Lux is ridiculous. I I don't know the exact math on this, but I think like 100% of my stories in recent weeks have been about the Oklahoma City Dodgers. Um, <laughs> so whether it's Gavin Lux or last night it was Will Smith, DJ Peters is on that team now. Connor Joe is a fun player who's on that team. Uh, they, Matt Beatty's been on that team. They've had so many guys Justin this year. Justin May is on that Justin team. Justin May is on that team. So many guys this year who have jumped up, made their big league debuts, uh, are currently at Oklahoma City. Gavin Lux is, is the cream of the crop right now, and he is doing things at AAA that, uh, as Will Smith put it to me last night uh, in our phone conversation, he said, there's hot, and then there's whatever Gavin Lux is right now. Like, that's how good he's been at the AAA level. Um, so Oklahoma City, you can catch the Dodgers on MILB.TV this weekend. Um, uh, another plug for that team which is somewhat a selfish one uh, for our purposes. But if you have not gotten a chance, and they are home against San Antonio this weekend, by the way, from Friday through Sunday, uh, if you've never listened to our buddy Alex Friedman do a broadcast, uh, that's another reason why you should be tuning in. Because Alex is one of those guys who, like, when I watch an OKC home game on MILB.TV, I'm like, I'm glad I got this in now because he's going to be in the big leagues in who knows how short a span of time. Alex is awesome. Uh, Gavin Lux has been awesome for Oklahoma City. And that team is absurd. And you should probably check them on milb.tv here here so that's it that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show you can get in touch with us podcast at milb.com i'm on twitter at tyler mon sam is on twitter at sam dykstra milb benjamin hill at ben's biz and uh, again all of ben's stuff now is on one concise page milb.com slash ben's biz you can find that all there and uh until we meet again next week enjoy another week watching baseball we'll talk to you then. <laughs>